0: To introduce the sermon this morning, I want to read a a passage apart from the main passage we're going to focus on. This is Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and just listen to it. It's not going to be projected, but listen to what it says. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want you to imagine widespread Christian collaboration. Imagine widespread Christian collaboration and unity. Different, Drastically different churches and denominations, Christians from drastically different economic situations, races, nationalities, theological traditions, collaborating and working together all across the world. In light of the fact that there is one body, one spirit, would that not be wonderful? In today's world where everything's so fractured and nobody can agree on anything— when we as Americans are are really kind of splitting apart and realizing that we do not share a, a common worldview anymore. Would it not be amazing for the Christians of the world to be united more than ever before and for us to see widespread Christian collaboration? What a wonderful opportunity we have as the church to band together and work together. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41 give us three good reasons to work toward that kind of unity and that kind of collaboration, uh, where we could be praying for our brothers and sisters of other churches and celebrating their victories and participating together across church and denominational lines. Three good reasons to work toward that kind of unity, but first we'll set the stage Before we get to verse 38, if you'll remember, over the last several weeks, the disciples have had a hard time. Maybe some of you have had a hard week. The disciples had a hard week. First, they failed when they tried to cast out a demon. Very publicly, they tried to cast out a demon, and they failed miserably. And then Jesus publicly rebuked them because of their lack of faith, which is why they couldn't cast the demon out. Then, as Jesus begins to privately try to teach them his core message that he was going to have to die on the cross, they couldn't understand what he meant. And they knew that they weren't understanding Jesus' core teaching, but they were afraid to ask him about it. So they failed to cast out a demon. They failed to understand what Jesus was all about. They knew they were failing to understand it, but they were too scared to ask him about it. Then, Jesus catches them arguing about who's the greatest among them. And has to correct them. So they're not having a stellar week. This isn't one of those weeks where they just keep winning. It's one of those weeks when they keep losing. And that's when we hit verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John, in essence, is telling Jesus... We saw somebody doing successful ministry in your name, but don't worry. We put a stop to that. You know how we failed to cast out a demon a couple days ago? Well, we saw some jerk casting out demons in your name, and we nipped it in the bud. Why? Because he was not following us. In other words, he wasn't one of us. We own Christian ministry, and this guy was trying to do Christian ministry, But we took care of it, Jesus. So I don't know if John, I don't know if he was trying to save face, if he thought he had done something right. Uh, Or maybe he realized he had done something wrong and his conscience was bothering him because Jesus had just taught them about humility. Or I don't know if this was just another example of the competitive nature of the disciples. Because remember, they had just been arguing with each other who's the greatest. So if they're competitive with each other, they're certainly not going to enjoy some outsider showing them up. And casting out demons. Whatever caused him to do it. We don't know. But we do know Jesus's response in verse 39. But Jesus said. Do not stop him. Do not stop him. And then he proceeds to give three reasons. Why he should not have stopped this outsider. Why they should not have hindered the ministry of those outside that inner circle. So. If you're a note taker and like a heading title, this one would be three reasons to pursue widespread Christian collaboration. Because Jesus here, he's just telling them reasons why they should not hinder someone. But I think these principles go beyond that to why they should actually have encouraged him and supported him in his ministry in Jesus' name. So the first one, one working in Christ's name is one not speaking evil against Christ. One working in Christ's name is one not speaking evil against Christ. Verse 39, Jesus said, "Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, so there was a lot of evil things being said about Jesus, and it was growing. He had the Pharisees and scribes and Herodians, who did not like him, and they were questioning everything he did. You know, why are your disciples not fasting? Why are you eating with sinners? Who do you think you are for giving sins? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? They're just at him constantly, accusing him. They accused him of blasphemy. And it was growing. The opposition was growing. And we even see that these people were working together, plotting how they could destroy Jesus. So you had all these religious and political elite speaking evil against Jesus' name, hating Jesus, wanting to snuff him out. Jesus no doubt knew that the crowds were about to turn on him. All the crowds that were shouting, our Savior, our Savior, were soon going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And then Jesus even promised his disciples that they were going to be spoken evil of. That everybody that was persecuting him is going to persecute them eventually. Write down and go look at sometime John 15, verses 18 through 20. And in those verses, Jesus just very bluntly promises, You've seen how the world treats me. Expect the world to treat you the same way. If I've been persecuted, you can count on the fact that you, too, will be persecuted. And then soon, in Acts, uh, the first Christian martyr, his name is Stephen, stoned to death for following Christ. Eventually, almost all of the twelve apostles are killed for following Christ. And that promise echoes through history to us today. We are not promised that the world is going to love us. We're promised the exact opposite. The world is going to misunderstand us, and they're going to hate us, and there's going to be persecution. Okay, what we have enjoyed as American Christians is a global historical anomaly. It's not normal for Christianity to be heralded and celebrated in the world. Normally, because we're not of the world, the world doesn't get us. And so there's a lot of people speaking evil against Jesus, and it's just growing So the application for us, what he's saying to them is, cherish every person not speaking evil against you. Cherish every person doing work in my name, because that's one less person set against you, speaking evil against you. Even if this person is not of us, even if it is someone outside of the church sphere you're comfortable with, even if it's not someone from Doolin's Grove or not someone who's Advent Christian or even not someone who's a conservative Christian, cherish the fact that they are doing work in Christ's name and therefore they are not setting themselves against you. Because in this world, you've got plenty of people set against you. So that's one reason that we should collaborate, work together. And we should celebrate those doing work in Christ's name even outside of our sphere. Okay, because that's less people who might persecute us. The second reason, in verse 40, one who is not against Christians is for Christians. This is similar to the first point. But one who is not against Christians is for Christians. Verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now this is extremely clarifying, I think. He just basically says there is no middle ground. Okay, people are either for you, as Christians or against you as Christians they're either for Christ or against Christ there is no mushy middle where they're sort of for Christ sort of not for Christ it's one or the other he says the same thing in Matthew twelve thirty. whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters either for or against either gathering or scattering these are the options And there's a big divide between them. All Christians ministering in Jesus' name are on our team. All Christians anywhere, no matter how they're going about it, if they're truly ministering in Jesus' name, they are on our team. There's not some weird middle ground where, yeah, they're Christians, but they're not my kind of Christians. Yeah, it's all well and good what they're doing, but they're not having Christians. Or they're not conservative Christians, or they're not Doolin's Grove Christians. So we eye them with suspicion. No, they are on our team if they are truly ministering in Christ's name. This middle ground idea makes us uncomfortable with Christians that we should be embracing. And it goes a lot further than we might think. And this is something I can't remember what commentary pointed it out, but I'd never thought about. But in Philippians chapter 1, we see Paul living this out in a way that would be difficult for us, I think, to emulate. He's writing to the Christians in Philippi, and he says, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel— in prison. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So in other words, Paul was in prison for being a Christian and there were a lot of people in his absence because he was a major force in the Christian movement. There were a lot of people in his absence going out and ministering in Christ's name. Some of them genuinely and they, they hoped that their ministry would encourage Paul. And some of them With really bad motives. They basically were trying to show Paul up. Maybe they were trying to show Paul, we don't need you. I don't know. Maybe they were jealous of Paul's extremely successful ministry. I'm not sure why they were this way, but they preached Christ from envy and rivalry out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but trying to afflict Paul So here they're preaching Christ with just the worst motives you can imagine. And listen to what Paul says. What? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So here's Paul looking at these people who are actively using ministry to try to hurt him. Terrible character issues and motives. I mean, all kinds of red flags problems. This is a very problematic ministry he's referring to, and he says, you know what, at the end of the day, if Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice in that. Now, if Paul can say that about these people, that opens up a huge swath of Christianity that we can embrace and rejoice in their ministry, even if we aren't sure about their methods. In fact, even if we're not sure about their character, if Christ is proclaimed, we have reason to rejoice Now, that's a challenging thought for me. I imagine it's a challenging thought for you. But ultimately, one who is not against us is for us in the Christian cause. Now, this doesn't mean we never speak up when there are these red flags, especially especially in your church. So if you see me preaching, and it's clear that I'm preaching with envious motives or out of rivalry or out of some angry, selfish ambition— you shouldn't say, well, remember that sermon he preached a while back. Let's just rejoice that he's preaching Christ and look the other way. No, in, in our ecosystem, you need to hold me accountable and your Sunday school teachers accountable. And this is the right place for you to address that. Bring it to my attention. If I won't listen, get some, a witness to come with you and bring it to my attention. If I still won't listen, uh, go over my head, talk to denominational people and have them address it with me. If I still won't listen, it's time to remove me. Okay, I'm not saying we should just embrace ministers with problematic character. What I'm saying is outside of our sphere, where in churches that we have no authority, it's not our our business to write off churches and Christian ministries. It's our business to support and be glad that Christ is proclaimed. Now, there's a lot of intricacies that go into that, especially if it gets into the zone where there's false teaching. See, the Bible treats false teaching much more harshly. So we can't celebrate a ministry that is blatantly not even preaching the gospel. But anybody that is genuinely proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, our core disposition toward them should not be suspicion or competition, but love and brotherhood and embrace. Now, that's a hard saying that needs a lot more explanation. But at the heart of it is the idea that we're all on the same team and there are no Christian competitors. And that means there's no place for jealousy. You know, when Arlington Baptist Church proclaims Christ, we rejoice. When Clear Creek Baptist Church proclaims Christ, we rejoice. When Presbyterians proclaim Christ, we rejoice. When liberal Christians proclaim Christ, even though there may be a host of things we disagree with down the line theologically, we rejoice that they're proclaiming Christ. When charismatic Pentecostals that believe in spiritual gifts that, that make us uncomfortable proclaim Christ, we rejoice. Because okay, we're all on the same team working toward the same goal. And the third reason, motivation for widespread Christian collaboration Even small deeds done in the name of Christian collaboration are significant. Even the very smallest deeds done by Christians working together with other Christians are significant. Look at the final verse, verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever even just gives you A cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, take all the help you can get and give all the help you can give. Don't stop this man from casting out demons in my name. Don't stop one who does a mighty work in my name. Don't even stop someone who's doing a a tiny work in my name because it all counts, it's all important. Take all the help you can get and give all the help you can give. Even the smallest acts of Christian collaboration are to be rewarded. When we pray for each other, beyond our little sphere, that's a rewardable act. If we communicate events for each other. You know, I have been mailed flyers for events at other churches And my response is, man, we already have a crowded calendar. Trash. And I'm kind of rebuked by this passage. Send people to each other's churches. You know, if you meet someone that's looking for a church and they live on the whole other side of Charlotte, why not help them find a church that's near them rather than trying to drag them all the way out here to Doolin's Grove Church so we can boost our numbers? We don't need to boost our numbers. Jesus said He would build the church. He'll add to our number those who are being saved. I believe that He will. So we should open-handedly say, you know, if you know a healthy church that's close to somebody you're trying to encourage toward Christ, say, "Go there. I'll go visit with you on your first Sunday." I know my pastor won't be mad at me because he just preached this sermon about these things. I have a closest church policy. I've always said if, if uh, for whatever reason the Lord just plucked me out of here and said, okay, I'm done with trying to make you be a good pastor, and I just had to start working for UPS or whatever, I would just find the, the closest geographical meeting place of Christians and probably just get as involved as I could there because we're all so imperfect. And when I get a call from someone who um, needs help, financial help, uh, if they're into Charlotte, I get their zip code, and I have a church search website I go to that I know they— um, They have criteria for who they allow to be on there. I know they're healthy churches. And I just try to give them the three closest churches and get them in touch with them. Now, of course, I'd love for them to come into our fellowship. But the main thing is that they get into fellowship with Christ and other Christians. We're not in competition. We're on the same team. If you drive by the intersection out here and Arlington Baptist Church has a big banner, and one of the um posts is crooked pull over and straighten their post what would you do if it was Dulan's grove church's banner well you might still just drive right by or you might you might text will or a trustee and say go straighten that post but you know, even even the even a um, church banner sign straightened in jesus name to help our brothers and sisters who are on our same team, fight for the same goals, will be rewarded. Let's speak well of each other. Let's not backbite each other beyond our church walls, our denominational walls. Let's celebrate each other's victories because a victory for elevation is a victory for Doolin's Grove because we're not two different teams, we're one team. I think this is a beautiful vision of what the global church can be. And it does happen a lot. I know many of you have good, dear friends from other churches and do have some crossover and unity with other people of other traditions even who are faithful Christians, and that's good. But just picture if it it became widespread and ubiquitous that people just knew Christians are united front. If the people in the world who are not Christians, living in a society that is fracturing and breaking up in every direction, if they saw, well, the one thing that is consistent is Christianity. They are a united front. They stick together. They are a team. What if if we saw a church nearby that we grew to love struggling in some way where they just totally lack people with a certain gift set that we have, what if we sent some folks over there to help? You know, we kinda hoard uh A C G C denominational people who have a lot of pastoral gifts. What what if uh, like Long's Grove is struggling in some way and they need help? What if they need one of these guys like a Ron or a Jeff or a Matt or whoever? Or what if it's a church that has some other need volunteer-wise? What if we pitched in together? What if we have a need and another church from outside said, well, hey, you know, this guy's really gifted here. Why don't, why don't we let him come over and help you? Will we be open to that? What if instead of reinventing the wheel, churches join forces on things? You know, we, um, we used to have this college thing, the Yak. Stephen and Krista remember the Yak and Will and... Uh, you know, we had a lot of a lot of college-age young adult people in their 20s come, but it was difficult for us to sustain. Nobody here felt called to take leadership of it, and um, I was looking recently on Arlington Baptist Church's website, and they apparently have some college weekly Bible study that meets at Nova's Bakery in Mint Hill at Hood's Crossroads, and uh, it looks like there's a couple of churches involved, and I've contacted their pastor to see what it is, and start talking to them if maybe that's something we could get involved with and you know what if we could work together like that maybe I could be one of their rotating bible teachers and our 20-somethings could get involved in that wouldn't that be good and then of course we have that fear well what if what if all of our 20-somethings go there and they meet this other pastor who's way cooler than Matt and we lose all of our that whole generation of our church i just think that that fear is an illusion. I just don't think that's anything to worry about. I mean, very worst case scenario, this uh, group of maybe two dozen people in their 20s that I have on my list of people I still pray for from Yak, maybe all of them start to trust and follow Jesus Christ, and maybe they do all go to Arlington or some other church, but they're trusting and following Jesus Christ as opposed to just orbiting around out there, because we have all these 20-somethings just orbiting around and you can't get, them, can't get them connected to Christ. I would much rather them be connected to Christ at another church than their closest affiliation being Doolin's Grove, but yet they're not trusting and following Christ. We can work together on these things, I think. You know, on a basketball team, it's not, a, it's not considered a negative when one player passes the ball to another who scores. Okay, it's just part of being on the same team together. I don't think we have to be afraid. What if all of these parachurch organizations—you know what a parachurch organization is? These are Christian organizations that aren't um, located at any one particular church. So crisis assistance ministry would be an example of that. Crisis assistance ministry came about when pastors from all the local churches in Charlotte said, we've got a lot of poverty— and we don't know how to handle it, let's pull our resources and hire some people who can do some real evaluation of the needs, people who are calling us. That's how it began. What if all these parachurch organizations just started to just overflow with volunteers and support as we started to just roll up our sleeves and get to work together? You know, For you to minister in Christ's name using your gifts doesn't only always mean it has to be here in this sanctuary on a Sunday morning. There are myriad opportunities for us to roll up our sleeves and get to work for the cause of Christ that would maybe look more like getting involved with crisis assistance ministry or the Pregnancy Resource Center. You know, Doolin's Grove doesn't have to start a pregnancy resource ministry. Okay, there's already one up and running, and we can get our weight behind that. There's many, many opportunities for us. What opportunities might open up if we collaborated with other churches and denominations and parachurch organizations? Because time is short, the stakes are high, and all who minister truly in the name of Christ are on the same team. So, that concludes the sermon. And I want to turn toward communion. And as we turn toward communion, as we take these elements, it's meant to reunite us with Christ, to refresh our bond with Christ, but also our bond with one another. And let it remind you that there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one Savior of us all. As 1 Corinthians ten sixteen through 17 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break— Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread.